Good morning, gents. Good to see you all today. Well, that weather is getting cold. It's going to be tough to be running out there in your shorts. All right. So that's where that came from. First Peter 4. Let's turn to First Peter 4, verses 1 through 6. We've got a very important lesson to look at this morning because we've been looking at how we are to live in a world that is different from the way that God wants us to live. And we've been told all the way back in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, that we are aliens and strangers. And if you're a follower of Christ, you don't have to be told you're an alien stranger. You know you're alien. You know you're strange. And uh, we're supposed to live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us. And we saw how we are to submit to all proper authority around us even those that are unbelieving, sometimes even harsh. And then we saw how we are to suffer for doing good. And this brings us to chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, where if we're going to enter this, this whole task, we have to arm ourselves, we have to prepare ourselves in a certain way. And Peter gives us great advice here on how it is we're going to live this life out there, suffer the, uh, the opposition that comes, and do it successfully. Let's look at verses 1 through 6. 1 Peter 4. Therefore, since Christ suffered in His body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because He who has suffered in His body is done with sin. As a result, He does not live the rest of His earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They think it strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead so that they might be judged according to men in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the Spirit. The first thing we want to notice in in verses 1 and 2 is this, that in order to live the Christian life successfully, you have to plan to suffer. Just go ahead and plan on it. Uh, Jesus taught those who considered believing in Him and following Him. He said to them and He warned them, Uh, Count the cost before you come. It's a silly thing to start a battle you can't win. It's a silly thing to start a tower you can't finish. It'd be ridiculous for someone to start a building around here and get about halfway up and run out of money and say, oops, sorry, and leave half the building for us down here on Poplar Avenue. He said the same thing about your, your spiritual life, your religious convictions. How silly of you to start out in a given direction, having not figured out what it's going to cost you at the end. You get halfway through and you have an incomplete life, an incomplete commitment. And it's certainly that way with following Christ. And he says you must plan to suffer. He says arm yourselves also with the same attitude. This is actually a military word, to arm yourself. Well, why don't we just go ahead and take take the military analogy for a moment. How many of you have actually been in battle with bullets whizzing around. All right. Well, 
Those of you who have gone into battle with bullets whizzing around know that you have to get yourself mentally ready. At least that's what I observe with my own son. They get themselves mentally ready. And, uh, you know, ultimately, down deep inside, you know that if you're in a battle where bullets are whizzing around, you could, you could die. And it'd be a silly and a foolish man who goes into battle and doesn't think about his death and doesn't make preparations for it. And, um, you know, in the services, you get, your, you get your affairs in order and they have, they have it prepared for you to come home in a body bag if that's what, the way it's going to be. And you, you reconcile yourself to that. And presumably, you wouldn't be in the armed services unless you planned that as a possibility. And when I look at these old cliffs in the Pacific with the Marines charging these islands, one after the other, these 18, 19-year-old guys, uh, and most of them are not coming home alive. I'm just thinking, what must they do mentally to get ready for that? You have this sick feeling in your stomach like this could be the last day I'm on the earth. But what are you going to do to fight well? If you're going to go down, you better go down well. So how are you going to prepare for that? And uh, I just noticed, I, I didn't pry too much of my own son because that's for a sacred space, but I did notice that he had, in his own way, said his goodbye to his parents and didn't want us to worry about it. Gave us his Christian testimony before he had his first day in Iraq so that we wouldn't worry about him. He kind of, so he could write us off. There's a, there's a way you have to get... You can't go into battle worried about what your parents are going to think if something bad happens to you. you. You have to be prepared. You have to get focused. And you have to be ready to die. And that's, it seems to me, what's involved in military preparation. There are certain physical things you prepare for. I mean, you, the last thing you want to have happen to you in a battle is to get surprised. If you got surprised, somebody screwed up. You're supposed to be able to anticipate what's going to happen, generally speaking, on the battlefield. And so the last thing you want is a surprise. And you certainly don't want a surprise inside here in your gut. And that's the reason for all the training. So you have people shouting at you and, and kind of simulating battle conditions under pressure so that you don't, your gut doesn't get surprised. Well, that's exactly what the Apostle Peter is saying. If you're going to do this thing, if you're, going to, if you're going to seek to walk with Jesus Christ, if you're going to try to be the light in the world and the salt of the earth and all the rest of those analogies, if you're going to try to do that, you better get your gut ready. The last thing you want is to go out there in your business and get surprised today. That shock of all shocks, someone thinks you're a nerd because you're a Christian. Are you crazy? You didn't figure that out before you started? So Peter is saying, arm yourself with this attitude. Remember, Jesus died in this business. So what are you expecting? And write other things off. Deal with it. Make a decision. There's a, there's a fundamental decision that's here before us. And you make a decision and it leads to certain consequences. The other one leads to consequences too. We'll get to that in a moment if you choose the other way. But if you choose this way, it has some consequences and they're not all physically, emotionally, and socially pleasant. So arm yourself with that attitude. Work through the scenarios. Figure out what it's going to be like. And I suggest to you, if, if you've not been very outstanding in your realm of service as a Christian, and you intend to be, why don't you think through the scenarios? Why don't you just anticipate what people are going to say? Well, I didn't know you, were, I didn't know you believed that. Well, I didn't know that that was your standard. What are you going to say? If you, if you go out of here and you intend to make some changes in your life, Think through the possible scenarios and the stuff you're going to get back as a result of it and, uh, and be prepared to pay, pay the price. 
Count the cost before you get started. So that's what Peter is saying. Don't let suffering sneak up on you and surprise you and throw you off course. You've already prepared for it. You've already prepared to die. I often say, I mean, I even took the risk to say this to junior high boys one time. You know, it seems to me that one thing that makes a man is that he figures out what he's ready to die for. And you can kind of, you know, as you get to know a man and you, you think, now there's a real man. It's a man who's, you can already, you can kind of feel it. Comes out of it. There's something he really cares about. And if you mess with that, you're probably going to be messing with him to the death. He has convictions. And it seems to me that one thing that makes a man is he figures out early on in life what is he going to die for. And certainly, we've been talking about the military, and if you're a man and you have Christian convictions, unless you're a conscientious objector or a pacifist, and if you are, we'd like to talk to you about that, but uh, unless you are, you should die for your country. And you have to figure that out early on. And I think young, young boys are taught that you know, we are to be devoted to our, to our country. The Bible teaches us that. And when there's a just cause, a just war, there are times when, when that's called for. So we'll lay down our lives. We'll certainly lay down our lives for our wives and our children. And, and first, uh, Ephesians 5 tells us that. You have to lay down your life for your wife. You're not just nice to her. You die for them. And certainly the same thing for your children. And anybody who doesn't sniff that out of you, uh, you know, they better, better start sniffing it out of you. They better feel that in you, that you're so committed to your family, you die for them. And there are certain moral principles that I, I assume you'd die for, uh, to tell the truth. And uh, what Peter is simply saying is you need to figure out, if you're going to follow Jesus, this above all things is something you're willing to die for. And I think that's what, one thing that makes a Christian man. Let's look at what's involved in this and why this suffering actually is a cool thing. If you look in verse 1, first of all, you'll see that Christ suffered in His body. So suffering unites us to Jesus. Now, Jesus' suffering is distinctive. His suffering is unique. It produces unique results. If you go out here and die naked on a cross, it's not going to do me any good. But when Jesus died naked on a cross, that did me a whole lot of good eternally did me a whole lot of good. So his death, his decision to die for us, produced distinctive and unique results. But his death is also exemplary. It is something we are to model. We're to look at how he did it. And we're to die in the same way. The Apostle Paul said, I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection. I want to know that power in my life. And then he also said, I want to share in the fellowship of His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death. So how did, how did Jesus die? If I want to become like Him in His death, how did He die? He looked at His enemies and said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. He was dying and He looked at His mother and He looked at His friend and said, Would you take care of my mother? John, behold your mother. Mother, your son. He looked at someone who was in need spiritually, in the midst of his own physical agony, he looked at the thief on the cross and promised him paradise. He evangelized him right there on the cross. That's how he died. He died triumphantly, but he died serving other people. So Jesus' death is exemplary for us, and we're to die in the same way. So get ready to die. Get ready to die with worship on your lips and service to your fellow man. That's the way we're supposed to die. So it unites us to Jesus. And the, the, the greatest thing, about your suffering today, 
as a result of the gospel, however it may be, is that there will be a unity and an intimacy between you and Jesus Christ through those sufferings. That is the main reason the Apostle Paul said, I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings. Because the Apostle Paul wanted to know him. And the only way you can know him in this life is if you willingly, gladly, as he did, take on the sufferings of walking with him. And it unites you to him. So that's the, the most glorious thing of all. And I, I'd have to say, for those of you involved in leadership in your churches in any way, whether it's teaching a Sunday school class or serving as a deacon somewhere, or in any way serving in our community with our parachurch organizations, let me just say that the, the, the greatest advantage of being a leader in those ways or any other way, a leader in any sort, of any sort, is that you're going to know more about Jesus than you ever would have known before. It's true. You put yourself out there and take on the burdens of leadership, you're going to realize you know more about Him than you would have. And here, here's one reason why. When you get into leadership, you'll not only get abused by the world, but by the church too. <laughs> because you put yourself out front, and you're going to be making some decisions that some people don't like, and you're going to get heat over it. And I, what I found out, I remember my first couple of years uh, pastoring in the church, I was just astonished with how deeply people feel things, how angry they can get in church. I was just kind of, good heavens, you know, I was in business for a while. We never acted like this. This is wild. And I was trying to figure out, what in the world is going on? And, and one of our older elders had to take me aside. You know, we had this conversation. I love older elders. They've helped me a lot through the years. He said, Sandy, you've got to realize now when you're in church, people care a whole lot about their opinions. <laughs> it, it represents their entire life, you know. If they express an opinion in church, a religious conviction or something like that, man, they just, they're putting their whole life on it. He said, in business, oh, you know, it's just an opinion. It's just out here. But no, in church, it's, oh, you know. And so when you get into leadership, if you happen to have done this, some of you know what I'm talking about, you'll, you'll find, boy, people really can get angry at me. Well, what do you think Jesus went through? He was dealing with the church, the disobedient, rebellious, unrepentant church, day after day after day, taking that kind of heat with people who really cared that he was messing with their religious convictions. And you get to know more about Jesus. You really do. And, and you, you understand him better. You love him more. Because you're in there with them. So the first and most important principle about planning to suffer is plan to get close to Jesus Christ and to be His bud. Secondly, in verse 1, you see that suffering actually aids our sanctification. Once you step out and get into it and start getting beat up a little bit, it'll actually help you. Because this is a, this is a half of a verse here that's been debated by scholars. I'm not going to pretend that I've got the final answer. I'm just going to tell you what I think it means. But because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. Oh, really? I see people suffering. They don't seem to be done with sin. Well, here's what I think is being said. There's a tendency when you put yourself out front as a person who's simply going to follow Christ and you take abuse for that. Here's, I, this is really coming out of observation and experience rather than a, a careful exegetical treatment of the text. But I think this is what Peter means. Peter himself went through it. You remember that when he was asked by the little maiden woman when Jesus was being, when he was arrested and being tried before Caiaphas, and she said, you know, are you, the, are you a follower of his? And Peter 
said, no, I don't even know him. And then he was asked three times, and finally he calls down a curse on himself and says, I don't know the man. Why? He was afraid of suffering. He didn't have his game face on. He wasn't, he wasn't prepared. He hadn't counted the cost. He didn't know this was going to happen to him. He got surprised. And his, he, he went to his fallback position, which was the lie. <laughs> have you ever done... I, I caught myself about three years ago. There's an instance in my head. I got surprised at something, and I just bold-faced lied. Because <laughs> I had to go back, and the repair work was awful, you know? You just wish you'd tell the truth and take the consequences right up front instead of take the consequences of having to tell somebody, you know, I just lied to you. It's a fallback position. You learn it when you're about three. <laughs> and guys are really good at it. And we learn how not only to lie, but then to cover up the lie and then cover up the cover-up. And pretty soon when you get to be 57, you realize, you know, you can't remember all that stuff, so now you have to tell the truth because you're going to get caught because you can't remember. Uh but we have these fallback positions. That was Peter's fallback position. Just lie about it. I never knew him. But then after that, you remember, Jesus forgave him after the resurrection, saw him at the Sea of Galilee, and asked him three times, Peter, do you love me? And it was a healing. It was painful for Peter to be asked that three times, but, but he was asked three times, and it was a healing. It was a therapeutic encounter with Jesus. And then you remember what Jesus told him, that you could be led where you don't want to go. And basically foretold, Peter's own martyrdom. And of course, you remember Peter's reaction. Hey, what about him? John. <laughs> is he going to hurt too? <laughs> Peter's, uh, even at his best, you know, it's difficult. But, and Jesus said, don't worry about John. Just think about what I'm telling you. And so Peter was told he was going <clears> to <throat> be a martyr, and he was. And so Peter goes from being a chicken, scaredy cat, to being one of the great martyrs in the church. And I think what Peter is saying is, look, once you've started this route and you're willing to take the heat, you realize, as David said in the Psalms, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Of whom shall I be afraid? What can, or as David says elsewhere in the Psalms, what can they do to me? And the more you take hits and you look around and you say, hey, I'm still alive. <laughs> and then the more you look up and say, hey, I'm always going to be alive. And the more you take it, the more you realize God has equipped you for it. And actually, the bolder you become. If you'll look at the life of Martin Luther, you see these tremendous struggles at the beginning of his life, but the more he takes the hits, the bolder he becomes. There's nothing they can do to me. And I remember hearing from, some of you may know the name, Joseph Son, T-S-O-N, who is a, a Christian leader in uh, Romania. And when Ceausescu was, was uh, president there and there were persecution of Christians, they would arrest Joseph. You remember? Some of you may have heard his testimony. Joseph would say, he would say to the police, they'd, they had hit him and beat him and they threatened to kill him, put a gun in his head. He said, would you please, please go ahead and pull that trigger? He said, because I have a lot of tapes out there and if you kill me, uh, then, then there'll be messages from a martyr and they'll be a whole lot more useful to the people of Romania. <laughs> and they just said, oh, 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 and they cursed and threw their guns down. Got all frustrated. But the more, you know, I can't imagine myself saying that. I said, please, no, for the sake of my wife and children. Uh, but the reason was Joseph had been beat up, arrested and beat up many times. And it really didn't matter anymore. And so once you give yourself to it, I think what Peter is saying is that 
actually suffering makes you more courageous, not less. It aids our sanctification. It reveals, when you suffer, it reveals your passion. In other words, folks can see, hey, he really meant this. He really believes that. That's one aspect of it. But the other is it actually strengthens your passion. You get more convinced of it all the time. When you're opposed by something or someone or a group of people and you listen to why they oppose you and you know it's evil, you actually become more convinced that you're right. It has the opposite effect than what your opponent would want. So I think that's what Peter is saying is that he who has suffered, this is verse 1, in his body is done with sin. You say, to hell with sin. I see it. It's ugly. It's dark. It's not taking this culture anywhere helpful. It's not good for my wife and children. It's not good for me. I'm, I'm moving ahead boldly to be who I believe Jesus Christ wants me to be. So, Plan to suffer because it will unite you closer to Jesus. It will aid you in your sanctification. Thirdly, it will clarify your choices. And he says in verse 2, as a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. He's saying as a result. In other words, when you suffer, you are less inclined to live your life for the foolishness of sin and degradation then you are to move ahead and live for the will of God. And behind all of this is a choice. Whose will are you going to serve? Is it going to be the will of your own lusts? Or is it going to be the will of the living God? You have to make that choice. And when you do, plan to suffer. That's what's being said. Count the cost up front. Now secondly, Peter raises a very, very good argument that will be convincing to some of us here. And that is in verse 3. We, we've tried it the other way. Been there, done that. He said, uh, and I, I think of some of us in our young adult experiences or college experiences, and Peter is talking to people who have similar experiences. It's like he's, he's, at a, he's got his first century Amen Bible study. He's saying, look, guys, I, I know y'all. And I know the kind of life you came from. And he says, look, you've spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and testable idolatry. He said, you've already invested enough of your life in that crap. Now let's think about something that's useful. You've come from that. Let's not go back to it. You've already, you've already spent years doing that. And the underlying assumption is, you know where this leads. It doesn't lead to anywhere good. Uh, debauchery and lust could very well be referring to sexual sins, but it also these are terms that can be used for general sin in general. Debauchery and lust. Lust is just fulfilling the will of your fallen flesh. Whatever it wants, you go get it. Whatever your lust desires, go get it. That's what a lustful life is. Debauchery. And then when you look at drunkenness, orgies, uh, orgies we think of in terms of sexual uh, social gatherings, but they could just be drunken parties. So you have drunkenness and orgies, which are then socially gathering as orgies and carousing, social drinking, drinking parties and so on. And he's saying, look, you've, you've been there and done that. Where has that gotten you really uh, to simply demean yourself? And then this leads to detestable idolatry. 
Now, the reason he puts these together, and by the way, if, you know, in the New Testament, you know, there are several what we call vice lists. And this is one of them. You'll, you'll find seven or eight of these throughout the New Testament. It's just to give a sample of what's around them in, in Asia. And it was the Greco-Roman lifestyle to have social drinking parties where all kinds of debauchery was taking place. And it was a form of pagan worship. And furthermore, these festivals or feasts pervaded the entire culture. I mean, you couldn't do anything publicly, even governmentally, without it involving some of these pagan feasts. So it wasn't just a matter of, hey, I love to go out and get drunk and have sex with prostitutes. It was, I want to be one of the guys. I want to be accepted by everybody else. It was a social thing as well. So this is what made it difficult to break with the past. It's kind of like uh, uh, Memphis in May, you know, the festival. Uh, I've never been, I have to say, but my children go and they tell me about it. And it sounds like it's a really cool thing. Lots of great bands come. Uh, but it's also kind of a drunken brawl for a lot of people just year after year. And I'm not saying that when you go you have to participate in that, but you're certainly going to see it. But what about those folks that just year after year just look forward to one great debauched uh, uh, drunken party uh, downtown all weekend. Uh, what is behind that? What, what life of despair and hopelessness would lead one to look forward to that as kind of the crowning event of their springtime right? Uh, but in Greco-Roman culture, that was a frequent thing. It wasn't just once a year, but when people gathered, that was kind of how they did it. And here's, here's the real tricky part, that this was done out of uh, at least in their theology, this was done out of reverence for their gods. And their gods controlled the prosperity of their nation. So if you removed yourself from these parties, you were not only denying yourself some lustful pleasures, but you were removing yourself from the civic patriotic gatherings and you were removing yourself from the public worship that was considered to be in the interest of the entire society. So it was not easy to remove yourself from that. I mean, it will, it will have, definitely have an effect upon your social standing. It will have an effect upon your business. It could have an effect upon your physical welfare. Now, in this period, uh, uh, 60, in the 60s, uh, even before Nero got at his worst, the folks in Asia did not seem to be threatened with their lives. That came later. Now, when, when we studied Revelation a few years ago and under Domitian and you know, later on in the 90s, of course, people were being put to death for their faith. Here, they're not being put to death. They're just being marginalized, kind of like we would be. And he's saying to them, look, you've already done that. You grew up in it, and you've done it for years. Where did it get you? And some of you, he's basically saying, are old enough to know it didn't get you anywhere except tireder and more wrinkled. So you've already tried that. You've done enough of that in the past. But then thirdly, look at this. He's saying that following Jesus won't win popularity contests. In other words, if you remove yourself from this lifestyle that really is taking you down instead of taking you up, it, it's going to be difficult on you socially. They think it's strange, he says in verse 4. They think it's strange. Well, remember, we're strangers, so that's appropriate. They think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation. So when you don't fall the way they're going, they think it's strange. Now, 
I know this is true. If, if you have an office party and people are used to doing certain things and they'll, they'll think you're strange because you don't want to participate. And furthermore, they, they, uh, they may have, there may be some consequences to this. Let's look, first of all, the unbelievers may feel rejected or judged. They feel strange that you don't plunge with them. You're making a social statement in their minds, and, and we understand. If you don't participate in everything they participate in, they feel judged or rejected. You, you not like me. That's the way they feel. And I understand that. I, I was one of them. <laughs> I thought Christians were pretty square and nerdy and not a whole lot of fun. And I know people will look at me the same way. Of course, in my case, they're probably right. Uh, but they feel rejected and judged, and I have sympathy for them on that. And when they feel rejected and judged, you can expect, expect that consequently, every once in a while, unbelievers may abuse you. So they have their feelings. They have their desire to be included, same way that we do. And so when we do something that suggests they're not being appreciated or not honored or not respected, of course, they're going to defend themselves. And the way they defend themselves is to abuse you. It makes perfect psychological sense. And if you were non-Christian, you'd do the same thing probably. Tacitus in, in this period said that Christians have a hatred of the human race. There's an intellectual. That was his response to Christians as he, as he observed them. They have a hatred of the human race. That is, they don't participate in the public festivals. They don't care about the gods. They don't advance their civic duties because they don't participate in this flood of dissipation. That's the way you're viewed. And what Peter is saying, well, duh, get prepared for that. Don't let that shock you or surprise you. And, and don't, don't demean other people because they look at you as a threat. That's to be expected. But notice, fourthly, that the reviling of unbelievers is not the last word. Now look in verses 5 and 6. But they will have to give account to Him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Unbelievers will have to give an account. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, uh, we will all die and then face the judgment. And that's what the Bible consistently says, that everyone will give an account. That they're, we're not just sliding through life and nobody's noticing anything. No, there's going to be an accounting for every word, every deed, every thought. There's going to be a total accounting. Jesus teaches that over and over again. The prophets teach it over and over again. And it is the fool who says there is no God. It is the fool who says, I'm just going to ride through these three score and ten and just hope for the best. That's a fool. It's like somebody who jumps off a bridge and gets halfway to the water and says, well, so far, so good. <laughs> Foolish. And people are living life that way. So far, so good. And Jesus is saying, you fool. There's coming a time of judgment. He teaches that over and over again. And if you, if you want to know which of the prophets in the Scriptures speak of judgment the most, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. He speaks of it more than any prophet in the Old Testament, more than John the Baptist. You'll find Jesus warning. Why? Because He loves us. Because it was through Him and for Him and by Him we were made. 
He knows us. And He knows the future. And He cares about us. And He's warning the entire world there is a judgment that's coming for every word, every deed, every thought. Jesus said that the things that you whisper in secret will be shouted from the rooftops. So there is a total accounting. You think if, if God is judge, and the Bible presents Him as judge over and over and over again. Joy to the world. The Lord is come. He comes to rule. He comes to judge, says the Christmas carol that we sing at the top of our lungs. There's joy in our hearts because He's coming as judge. If God is judge, do you think that He's a weak judge? Do you think that He's a an unjust judge? Do you think that He's a forgetful judge? He is a perfect judge. And the question for us this morning is, are we living our lives in light of who He is? Of course, He's Savior as well. He saves us. We'll talk about that in a moment. But He is Savior and judge. He's both. Just like your daddy. Your daddy loves you. But your daddy's also powerful, big, strong. And he can be, get angry. And some of your daddies got angry way too much and in the wrong way. But some of you who had very healthy relationships with your fathers, you know that down deep inside, they could also get very angry. Why? Because on the positive side of it, there was a sense of justice. And they wanted, he wanted you to have a sense of justice. And he could get angry when he saw violations. Well, if he did that very imperfectly, think about God who's perfect. Yes, he loves his sons. But he has, there's an anger and there's a judgment with him. And he's bringing this, this entire cosmos into judgment. Nobody's getting away with anything. And look what he says here in the text, that this judgment, is, this account is going to be given to Christ. In verse 5 he says, they will have to give account to Him who is ready to judge. He's ready right now. There's a sense of judgment that's going on right now. And the final judgment will take place at His throne room, at His time, in His way, and He will judge. If you keep your finger there in 1 Peter 4, you might want to turn back with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And we get a nice little reminder of this from the Apostle Paul, who in chapter 5 is talking about the things that will happen at the end of life. But you get to verse 10. This is 2 Corinthians 5.10. Paul says, page 1878, Paul says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Does that strike reverence in your heart? A sense of awe and wonder and the right kind of loving fear of God? That we are going to appear before Christ, the one who was naked on the cross and died for our sins, is not coming back that way. You will never see Him that way again. He was put into the hands of wicked men by the decree of God that we might have our sins forgiven. And God had also decreed that that one who would die for us naked on a tree would be enthroned at His right hand with all power and all authority, ruling over all dominions and every name that has been named. 
And God loves His Son and has rewarded Him with the universe and given Him all judgment. Jesus is judging in the place of His Father. He's been given all power to judge. This Jesus that knows every one of our thoughts and hears every one of our words and knows every one of our actions, He's coming to judge. That's what Peter is saying. And that is what makes human suffering from other men a trifle by comparison. And that's what the Marine Sergeant will tell you when he's yelling in your face. When it's all said and done, he said, what you just experienced for me is a trifle compared to what it's like to have bullets whizzing around your head. But it's the best I can do. And if the judgments of wicked men seem too much to bear, what will we do in the face of the judgments of the living Christ who knows every thought, word, and deed? That's what Peter is saying. Don't get carried away with the difficult circumstances in this worldly life. Get your eyes lifted up to the eternal realities and what's coming. And get yourself, if you want to arm yourself... Arm yourself for today's abuse and hostility, whatever it may be, but arm yourself for the day of judgment that is coming and get prepared for that. And think through that scenario. Unbelievers will have to give an account to Christ. And notice, whether dead or alive. Some may say, well, I just hope I die before He gets here. If the Jesus you just described is the Jesus that's coming back, I just I don't want to live that long. Well, look what Paul said. Look what Peter says. They will give to account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. He will judge everyone who's living. He will also judge your father, your grandfather, your great grandfather, your great great grandfather, and all their friends and everybody who ever lived from the beginning of time immemorial. He will judge them all. You say, how is that going to happen? They're already dead. Well, leave your finger there in 1 Peter. Turn back to John chapter 5. Let's see what Jesus says about it. In John 5, verse 28. Look at verse 26. For as the Father has life in Himself, He has granted the Son to have life in Himself, and He has given Him authority to judge. Because He is the Son of Man. He is that figure in Ezekiel and Daniel. Jesus is the Son of Man, the, the great eschatological figure coming at the end of time who's going to judge all the universe. That's what Jesus is saying. The Father has given Him, the Son of Man, authority to judge. Now look at verse 28. Do not be amazed at this. For a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear His voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live. And those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just. For I seek not to please myself, but Him who sent me. Look at this. There will be the, the rising of those who are rising to everlasting life, but there will be also be the rising of those who will be condemned. So there will be a general resurrection of the entire human race. Why? Our sins were in the body, and so they will be judged in the body. If we sinned against God with our bodies, our bodies will be punished. 
And that's a just judgment for having rebelled against the Lord, not only in our spirits, but in our bodies. So nobody is getting away with anything in the body or in the spirit. Because there will be a resurrection for everyone to reappear in the court of God. And to hear the charges and the evidence and to hear the right and just judgment of the only one who could possibly give a total and perfect judgment. That's an awesome thing. And so I say to you, when you are opposed in any way because of your desire to follow Jesus Christ, rather than feeling sorry for yourself, you must feel sorry for the one who just persecuted you. That is just one more thing that will not be forgotten before the throne of God. And you would not want to have to pay the price that that poor person is going to pay because they abused one of Christ's brothers. I promise you, you and I will be awestruck by the judgments of God against those who have persecuted the people He loves. So what we normally do is feel sorry for ourselves. And it's because we have forgotten God. Which is a strange thing when you think you're being persecuted for your faith. You have then forgotten God and felt sorry for yourself. Here's what Jesus says. You've been persecuted? Rejoice. The prophets before you were persecuted. And their reward is great. And so is yours. And the punishment of those who have persecuted you is beyond your current belief, probably. So unbelievers will have to give an account. You do not want to switch sides. When you're being abused, that's the last thing you want to do. If you remember the story you know, in World War II, the Battle of the Bulge. What was the bulge? The bulge was the last hiccup of the German Reich trying to overwhelm the Allies and give the impression that they were indefatigable. And so there was a bulge in the Allies' forces as the Germans just thrust their way through. But of course, eventually, they wore out because they didn't have the resources. They'd been bombed to death. And then their punishment was all the greater. But there were some people when the German forces came through and seemed to be victorious during the Battle of the Bulge, they actually switched sides. And that got them in a lot of trouble because the Bulge didn't last that long. And right now you're in the Battle of the Bulge and every once in a while it looks like the other side is winning. Gentlemen, this is the last hiccup of a very angry devil. And he is more angry because he knows what I'm telling you is the truth. You may doubt it. He doesn't. And that's the reason he's very angry. Because the Bible says he knows his time is short. Well, if he knows his time is short, why don't we know his time is short? And why don't we act like it? So Peter is saying uh, unbelievers will have to give an account. But notice the big prize is that believers live in two realms. And let's look at this. It's nuanced now in verse 6. The wonderful thing about this verse is that Peter doesn't just smooth this over and say, now boys, everything's going to be fine. And No, he, he, he admits the difficulties of living in this life. 
He says, for this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead. That is to our grandparents and our great grandparents. The gospel was preached to them too. They're dead now. Most of them. <coughs> but the gospel was preached to them. Why? So that they might be judged according to men in regard to the body. That is, their body died. Why did your great grandfather die? Because he was a sinner. Why is the preacher looking older every year? Because he's a sinner. It's clear evidence that he's a sinner because his outer nature is wasting away. And he looks a little older and his hair gets a little grayer and pretty soon the whole system is going to shut down and be dead as an act of God's judgment. My body is under the judgment of God. It belongs to this world. And the whole world is under judgment because my body, along with yours, and every body that's ever been on this earth except for Jesus' body, has been in abject rebellion against the One who created us. And they're all under judgment. My body's under judgment. But, uh, so our bodies are dying along with everybody else. Our bodies are in judgment just like the unbelievers' bodies are, are uh, under judgment. They're all under judgment. That's the reason we're dying. And those who try to say, you know, dying is just part of nature. Everything dies. It's just part of living. I say to hell with that idea. And I mean it literally what I just said. If it comes from hell, send it back to hell. I was not made to die. I was made to live. And that's the reason I want to live. Because I was made to live. And death is my enemy. And I hate it. And I'll probably be at some of your funerals and more of you will be at mine. And I hope you'll dislike mine as much as I'll dislike yours. Because the enemy is my death. Your, uh, my death is uh, my enemy. And your death is my enemy. And I don't like it. It's not natural. And I was not made for this. So it's an imposition on the way that I feel about life and I was made to feel about life. But I sinned against it. And so my body is going to die. Now he's coming back. <laughs> Glory be to God. And this is what Peter is saying. He says, our bodies are dying, but we live in two realms. Our spirits are alive. So the key to the Christian life is to live in this world with a body that is decaying like everything else in this world. You don't have to like it. And actually, you must not like it. You must not like it. It must not be just ordinary to you. It must be an invasion to you. But you must reconcile to it in the sense that you're, you're in this world and that's the way it is. And the reason you can do that is because your spirits are alive. And that is what makes the difference between someone who follows Christ and someone who doesn't follow Christ. Yes, all of us have our outer nature wasting away, but there's a secret with the follower of Jesus Christ. His spirit is alive, which is to say that apart from Jesus Christ, our spirits are dead. They are wasting away as well. And that's the reason that when you're involved in drunkenness and carousing and orgies and just satisfying all the lusts of your fleshly body, then your spirit is dying right along with your body. 
is going in the same direction. They're both damned. But what Peter is saying is, do you realize as a result of coming to Jesus Christ, your spirit has been liberated and is out from under the curse of the judge. It's out from under condemnation. And not only is it out from under condemnation, it's out from under the spiraling decay of death. Your spirit is actually getting stronger, if I can say, younger all the time. There's nothing more beautiful to me than one of you old guys who's acting like a kid spiritually. Excited about the kingdom of God. Excited about what you're learning in the Bible. The fact that you come to Amen Bible study to keep learning, even though you're 75, 80, 85 years of age, nothing more beautiful than that. Why? Okay, so my outer nature's wasting away. So my brain doesn't remember as well. But my spirit's alive. And I'm being taken upward, not downward with my spirit. So you see, I've got, I'm living in two realms. I'm living in this age. I'm also living in the age to come. I'm living with a body that's wasting away. I'm living with a spirit that's getting stronger and younger all the time. That's what Peter is saying. So, yes, indeed, we understand that because of our own debauchery and our our connection to this whole world order in our bodies we're wasting away, but we are distinctive and different. And what difference does that make? It means that we're living according to God in the Spirit, to the Spirit. See what he says in verse 6? We live according to God in regard to the Spirit. So we do have the power and the desire to separate from things that destroy our spirits. And then what happens? Those who have new spirits... When we die, our body goes to the grave. And there is, there is its resting place and its place of decay. But our spirits go into its presence. See what the Apostle Paul says about this in Philippians. He said, as far as I'm concerned, I desire to depart this life and be with Christ. Paul says, as far as my own selfish interest is concerned, I just soon go on because I'll be with Him. Stay with you guys. But he says, because of you, I'm convinced I'm going to stay. So Paul's desire to stay in this life was rooted in his desire to help other people. And that's what we must cultivate in our own thinking. Not staying here because we want to enjoy this pleasure and that pleasure. Are you kidding me? The pleasures that await us are unspeakably glorious. So the Apostle Paul was putting it that way. Peter's saying the same thing. With regard to the Spirit, with regard to God, we, we're, we're released. We're going into His presence. Then what happens at the general resurrection? At the general resurrection, all those who are with Christ, all those who are His people, those who have made a fundamental decision to walk with Him and to be His brother, to be His son, to be His child, to be His disciple, all those, their bodies will be raised from the dead and be united with their spirits. And those bodies will be defended by the living judge. And here's why. Because the penalty for every thought in that body of a believer, the penalty for every deed, for every word that was ever came out of that body of that believer, was paid for in the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was paid for completely. There is a judgment. God is not fooled. He knows everything you've said, everything you've thought, everything you've done. And He took all the righteous indignation against all of your sins in your body and He laid them upon the body of Jesus Christ. And once that payment has been made, God is not only not foolish, He is not unjust. 
And if it's been paid by Jesus Christ, that means it's been paid. And you can't charge twice for the same sin. When, when Paul, when John says that he is, you know, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. He doesn't say faithful and gracious or faithful and merciful. He says faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why does he say just? Because it will be unjust for God to judge his own son with our sins and then judge our bodies with his sin. And what makes us different from all the unbelievers is that we have this body of Jesus Christ that has stood in our place and has guaranteed for us not only liberation in our spirits, but one day liberation in our bodies. That's the reason, gentlemen, that we go into a world fearlessly, courageously, with determination. Been there, done that. It leads me nowhere but downward. Been here doing this. And I'm not leaving it. Because I know the judgments of God. And I know the salvation of God. And I know that day is coming soon. And I'm not going to be a fool. That's what Peter is saying. So arm yourself with that attitude. That's what the whole deal is. Arm yourself. Because this is warfare. Arm yourself right here today with that attitude. And you can go out there and beat snakes. You can go out there and do battle. You can go out there and in the eyes of God be tremendously successful as His Son simply because you've got your eyes on Him and on the coming day of judgment. Let's pray. Father, uh, we thank You for this coaching from Your Apostle Peter. Thank You for his own personal experience which verifies it. Thank You for the experiences of the men in this room that verifies it. That as we plan to suffer, having already left the other way, we know that we do not win popularity contests in this world. But we also know and experience the pleasure of the living God which anticipates the day when we will experience absolute, perfect, physical and spiritual redemption because of the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. For the great joy of belonging to You and of experiencing the power of it, we give You thanks. In Jesus' name, Amen. God bless you all.